0: We'll get to this later in the book of Samuel, but I love the picture of when David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. And he takes it just a few steps, and he stops, and he prays. So before we go any further, let's let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing and the Lord's help once again. Father, we have sang, we have prayed, we have read that we need you, that we need your help. And Lord, I echo that prayer. I pray, Father, that you would meet every need of every heart that is here tonight. Father, I pray that you would accomplish your purpose. We know that you're accomplishing your purpose for the world and for history, but Father, we want you to accomplish your purposes at Trinity and in each heart and in each home that is represented here tonight. So, Father, that's something I can't do, so I ask that you would do it. I pray that my words would fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten. We want your words. We want to hear from you. So let your truth take up residence in our hearts tonight. And as we move forward from this place, we pray. Amen. Well, when I was a kid, I had a group of guy friends. We had the exciting experience of being close friends all the way from kindergarten. Really, some of us from preschool all the way through high school and through college and and remain close friends today. One of the things that we love to do, especially in middle school and high school, is we love to play, play basketball. Most of us, we were all on the same school team, we were on the same church team, and you know, for, there's this period where, as we were all developing, we were kind of all about the same skill, you know, we, so, someone would grow a few inches and he'd have the advantage, and then someone else would, you know, learn a new post move, and, 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 you know, that was how it was for a while, until one day, my buddy Jonathan, and don't, you don't know him, don't tell him I told you how good he is, he would appreciate that too much, um, <laughs> but he was way better than all of us and it just happened overnight and when i mean way better i mean i mean way better he went on to play college basketball and and they, we reached this time where he was so good that he was ruining the games right he couldn't even really play with us it was like you know watching a pro player play with you know high schoolers like it's like i mean what use one hand or something and that, and that's kind of how it was but we adjusted we we all knew this and so so we used to play this version of a basketball called 21 where it's kind of each person played for themselves and so we started to we started playing this rule set of rules where Jonathan had to score 21 but we only had to score 13 right and he would still win every he would still win every time it wouldn't matter what the handicap was we had to keep changing the rules to make it to make it fun and you see because Jonathan was so much better And you've got to promise never to tell him this, right? (laughs) Uh, Because he was so much better and because he was so much faster and so much stronger, the handicap didn't matter. In fact, I think he even liked playing with the handicap because he wasn't just proving that he could beat us, you know, fair and square, 21 versus, you know, 21. He was proving that even when the odds were stacked against him, He could still beat us. And beat us, he did. Throughout the book of Samuel, and really throughout the Bible, we see time and time again that God likes to work with a handicap. Or maybe we should just say a perceived handicap, right? He likes to work in ways that are Creative to display His glory and His power. God is so powerful. He is so great. He is so much stronger than the nearest competition. He is beyond His enemies or any obstacle that could ever be imagined that He likes to work in ways that highlight His strength. We just finished watching, most of us, the Summer Olympics, right? One of the things I liked to watch was Uh, was the high jump, right? It's amazing to me, the pole vault, the high jump, right? And we'd watch these high jumpers display how high they could jump, which blows my mind. Well, Olympic high jumpers don't display their leaping ability by jumping over trash cans or chairs, right? They purposely set up a bar and raise it To display their incredible ability. They'll raise it even six or seven and I saw the world record is eight feet to show how high they can jump. That's what God likes to do. He likes to raise the bar and what we're going to see tonight and all throughout the book of Samuel is God raising the bar, setting up circumstances that seem too high and too hard and too difficult and then leaps right over them. We see it time and time again. And guess what? We're going to see that in Revelation 2, aren't we, Pastor Mark? But the main idea that's before us tonight is that God permits His people to endure hardships and to endure difficulties so that we would see our need for a Savior and to cry out to Him who alone is mighty to save. God is always working behind the scenes But he usually doesn't work in the way that we would expect him to. Instead, he often waits till things seem completely hopeless and then steps in to save his people in miraculous and stunning fashion. God does this to help us make sure that we don't steal his glory. And so that we will learn that it is not by strength and not by might that men prevail, but by trusting in the Lord. Last week, we began our study of the book of 1 Samuel by zooming way, way back. We began by thinking about the theme of kingship how the how the theme of a king or should we say the king is developed all throughout the bible particularly from genesis we see it at the very beginning god the king right and how that develops all the way up to first samuel and we saw lots of interesting pieces about god's plot line and they're going to help us understand samuel as we as we move on so if you missed that you might want to you might want to check that out on the on the web but Perhaps the most important thing that we saw was this Old Testament promise that God made to Adam and to Eve and to Abraham and then to Noah and then on to Israel. That even though mankind has rejected God as their king, this is what we call sin, even though mankind has rejected God as the king, God has set in motion a plan to make it right. God promised that through the seed of a woman, he was going to send a baby into the world. And this baby is going to be and is the true king. This king would come to earth on a rescue mission to gather his people to conquer their enemies and to give them a land, to give them a home in his kingdom. But this kingdom would not come in ways That people expected. No one expected it to come with a donkey or on a cross. Not even the angels expected this. But we're getting ahead. We, in First Samuel, are picking up on the middle of the unfolding of that story. Now tonight, I'm going to try to make it all the way up through chapter 2, verse 10. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the sections as we come to them. And I'm going to try to give you some narrative hooks or some plot points that, that you can maybe hang some important points on as we go. One of the first plot points, one of the first narrative hooks, is one, something we also talked about last week, and that's what we could call unimpressive beginnings, right? Let's look down at chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go on the big names. There's a certain man of Ramathim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerahim, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph, and Ephraphite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, last week, we started in verse 1, and we saw that the story of 1 Samuel has very unimpressive beginnings. And in fact, they are so unimpressive that that is part of the point. That is noteworthy to us. The story begins with a man named Elkanah, Elkanah and his family from Ephraim. Now, we've already worked through this last week, but what's significant about this family is that they are insignificant. One commentator I read, I think he exaggerated the point a little bit by saying that this is a that this family is, that they're nobodies from nowhere, right? Now that may be a little strong because this family is the family that Samuel was born into. But from the very beginning of the book, I mean, chapter one, verse one, we're already seeing that God usually chooses to do His kingdom work through things that are small. Through things that are weak. Through the powerless and the poor. Through the small and through insignificant people. And so that's what we see right away in verse 1. But we also see that not all is well in the home of Elkanah. Now, our first scene opens with this unimpressive beginning. And perhaps we could say the second scene is one of barrenness. Is one of barrenness. Let's read verses 3 through 8. Now this man used to, used to go up year by year from his city to worship, to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where, two, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. Verse 7, so it went on, year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkinah her husband said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Okay, now we've as we think about barrenness in Israel, we've already seen in verse two that, that this man, this husband, had two wives. One, Penina, she had lots of children, and then one, Hannah, had no children. Now, our review from last week is already helping us, because we need to remember, when we read this story, we've got to place this in the whole context of the Bible. And we need to remember God's great promise to Abraham. God's promise to Abraham was that he was going to make him a great nation, and that he was going to bless his people now, for them to be a blessed people, don't there have to be people? They have to have, they have, to have children. And we see this moving throughout the Old Testament narrative, this, this seeming obstacle of childlessness. Where are the children going to come from? We see all this barrenness, and we see it yet again. And what's going on in this household is the opposite of Blessing. Now, for God's people, part of the curse that he gave to them, in Deuteronomy, he gave them a series of blessings and curses. Blessings if they obey and curses if they disobey. Well, in Deuteronomy 7, God told Israel that part of the promised blessings that they would enjoy is that if they obeyed God, there would be no barrenness. Deuteronomy 7.14 says, There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. Yet here we have an Israelite woman who is childless. And as we'll see in the coming verses, Hannah is actually the righteous one. She is the righteous figure, a woman of incredible faith, and yet she is barren without children. And her evil rival has many children. And so already we get this clue, and this is an important clue. We have to read carefully. It's an important clue that this is no ordinary barrenness. This is not normal. There's something greater going on here. And down in verse 6, we have another clue, even perhaps a bigger clue. Why was she barren? The Lord had closed her womb. This was God's doing. I think that it's one of the major clues that we have to help us see that Hannah's barrenness was something bigger than just one woman unable to have children. There were probably many women who were unable to have children in in Israel. But we see that this is pointing to something significant. Hannah's situation was a sort of parable about Israel's spiritual condition. Now, she was literally barren. I'm not saying she was not barren. She was literally barren. But that barrenness is pointing to us the fact that Israel it herself was spiritually barren. I think this is why the names of Eli's deadbeat sons, the priests, are mentioned this early in the text. To point to us what the spiritual leadership is like. Now, we'll see more about them later, but suffice it to say for now that the two priests, the two, these two priests of the Lord, men who were to lead Israel in their worship of God, were incredibly wicked and immoral people. And God eventually breaks them into pieces, as we will see later. And one of the things that we've seen throughout the history of Israel is that as the leadership goes, so goes the people. As the leadership of Israel goes, so goes the nation. And so Israel as a nation was spiritually barren. You remember last week, this is why we reviewed what was going on in Judges. Judges ends where 1 Samuel picks up. It, it's, it, there's actually some, some, over, some overlapping. And Judges ends in what? In darkness. an incredible spiritual darkness. And even though Elkina and Hannah were righteous, they were something of a remnant of God's people, people who still worshipped Yahweh. So for us, as we're reading, this is giving us, hopefully this is getting the wheels churning, that some questions should be coming to mind. Now, we know the end of the story, but think about how this is unfolding. Is, is God going to abandon his people? Is God going to keep his promises? Because we have this refrain of the judges that is ringing in our ears. And in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. No king? But do you remember last week we talked about how God has promised a king? Genesis 49? God has promised a king. So, where's the king? Where's the king? Let that phrase ring through your head as as we study the book of Samuel. Where is the king? Well, that brings us to a third scene, a scene of suffering and and a broken heart. Now, Hannah, as we see, was brokenhearted over her barrenness. But to make matters worse for her, she had a rival. What do we call these when you have multiple wives? A wife-in-law? I was thinking about that today. I spent too much time thinking about wife-in-law. I think that'll work. Yeah. So she had this rival who provoked her because of her barrenness. Just imagine the pain. Just imagine this for a moment. The pain, first of all, of ongoing barrenness and and all the personal pain and the stigma that that brought with it. But that pain was only magnified by a rival wife who mocked her and the providence of God that she was experiencing. Now here, I don't think it's reading too much between the lines for us to, to understand the dynamic of what's going on here. We've already seen that in this context, barrenness signifies something. It signifies, in a sense, God's displeasure. You could really say it signifies a curse. And Penina thinks this is funny. So she rubs it in, not not on a bad day, right? Year after year, she's rubbing it in. The text says that she provokes and irritates Hannah. She mocks Hannah as she's trying to worship. Her point, she's trying to make a point, and it's a pretty significant theological point. She's saying, look what God has done to you, and you're trying to worship him. This is a God who clearly does not hear you, he clearly does not see, and he clearly does not care. He doesn't like you. Panana's voice in this story represents the great temptation that we all face in the midst of our suffering. The temptation for us is to think that when we're hurting, that God is not near. That he doesn't hear us. That he doesn't care. Isn't that how it goes? I mean, think back on significant suffering in, in your Christian life. We, I know that in my life, I've seen that faith is often the most difficult when the pain is the greatest. It is so hard to see God clearly when we have tears in our eyes. And so it was for Hannah. Year after year, barrenness, tears. Pranina's provoking, more tears. Year after year, Hannah's heart has remained broken as she went up to the house of the Lord to worship. And this brings us to the next scene in our story. And we could could call it something like this. A broken heart goes to Shiloh. A broken heart goes to Shiloh. There's a change of scenery as we change scenes here. Let's read verses 9 through 11. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, Hannah, was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but give to your servant a son, then I, will give to him, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Now, all of a sudden, we have a, a change in the story. Our characters have made their way to the location of the tabernacle. This is at Shiloh. It's where the temple would eventually be built. And Hannah, who has been suffering for years, she's taking action. Notice that. She is taking major action. As it turns out, that the action that Hannah takes, and it's interesting because you get this picture, Eli the priest, he's sitting, and Hannah is rising up to pray, right? The one who should be acting is sitting by idol, apparently getting fat, we'll read later, and Hannah is crying out to the Lord. As it turns out, the action that Hannah takes changes the course of her whole life. And it changes the whole course of Israel. And guess what? It has changed the course of our lives. Verse 10, the text says that Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She didn't wallow in her misery. She didn't aim her revenge at Penina. She didn't drown her grief in some sort of earthly distraction. She didn't turn her back and hide from God. Hannah ran to God again. Again. It's it's important for us to see that she brought all of her bitterness, her bitter suffering, she brought it all with her as she ran to God. And friends, we should take note of this movement. And this is something for us to imitate. Hannah's suffering drove her not away from God, but to God which means that we can pause for the first of what I think will probably be a dozen times in this book and reflect on the glorious reality that no matter how bleak our circumstances look, no matter how dark your future seems to be, child of God, you are never without hope. God has strength and his strength is at his disposal and he aims it for your good. What a precious promise for us. We should always keep our despair in check by remembering that in our suffering, there's a mighty God at work and there may be a big change right around the corner. So don't lose heart. But Hannah's hope was not just in a change of circumstance. That was not her primary hope. Yes, she wanted wanted a son, right? She wanted a change, but that was not her ultimate hope. The text shows us that Hannah's hope was in the God who rules over circumstances. Yes, Hannah, the text says, pray to the Lord. And the prayer that we have recorded for us in verse 11 is beautiful. Now, we don't have much time to linger here. There's lots to cover. But let me just, in passing, point out a couple key parts of this prayer that I think will be an encouragement to you and will propel us to pray. One of the first things we notice about this, this prayer here in verse 11 is it's intensely theological, right? The first thing we notice is that Hannah knew the character of her God. Hannah knew the character of her God. She was not full of empty mutterings and just verbatim sayings that she heard in Sunday school. She knew him and she knew what he was like. Hannah begins by acknowledging the character and the identity of God. She calls him the Lord of hosts, the God of armies, the God of angels, the one with power at his disposal, the one who is able to see just like, in there's so many similarities here. Just like God saw the affliction of his people as they suffered for 400 years in Egypt, just like he saw the people in Egypt, so God sees the suffering of his people in every time, every location, all throughout history. Ultimately, this was the key to Hannah's faith. She knew the God to whom she prayed. That in spite of her circumstances, Hannah's confidence was not in the fact that God would give her what she asked for. Her confidence was in the sovereignty and the goodness of God. She knew she could trust Him to do what is best. And she knew that she could trust Him to hear her. Because Hannah knew the character of God the language that Hannah uses here is clearly linking back to the way God dealt with Israel in in Egypt. And what's important for us to remember is we have this massive book of history. Massive book of history. Why do we need to know it? so we can know the character of God Hannah knew Israel's history she knew what Israel said to God when they were suffering in Egypt Hannah knew it and she was saying God act today the way you acted in the past let our prayers be full of that kind of language where we're sure of the character of God and then we are pleading for him to act now the way he has done in the past How different would our prayers be if they were rooted in a supreme confidence in the character of God as he actually is, not as we dream him to be? The second thing we see about this prayer is she understood her identity in relation to God. She understood her rank in the chain of command, right? The text says that Hannah approached God as his servant, as his servant. She knew that even though God would hear, and even though God cared, Hannah did not presume to be God. She knew that God was God, and that she was not. So she came to God humbly as a servant, and that affects the type of prayers we will pray. But a third thing we see is that even though she came humbly, she boldly made her request. She poured her heart out for what she desired. And one of the things we see is that she was asking for God's attention. She was asking for, for God's favor, recognizing that ultimately, even though the world offers all sorts of backups and substitute solutions, other places to run in the midst of trouble, Hannah knew she had nowhere else to go but God. And friends, we won't pray until we recognize there's nowhere else to go. He is the only source of real help. So Hannah's faith drove her to God. And then a fourth component, and we'll talk about this later, is, is this vow that Hannah vowed that she was going to use God's blessings for God's purposes and for the good of others. But there's something else that happens in this text. So let's keep reading. Look down at verse 12. Let's read 12 through 18. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. (laughs) Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. There's lots of things to notice here. One of the things we notice is now we have this new character that's coming on to the scene. The character is Eli, the the high priest. He's the father of Hophni Hophni and Phaninus, his two sons who are also priests. And even though his sons are the real villains of the temple, their father isn't given a whole lot more credit. He's not that much better. Because here we have the high priest's right? The guy, the religious guy, mistaking desperate prayer for drunkenness. I mean, he's rebuking earnest prayer, which is really ironic because if you know the story, his sons were incredibly wicked and immoral and he doesn't rebuke them. So he's rebuking the woman for earnest prayer, but lets his kids sleep with women in the temple, right? Do you see the incredible backwardness and the irony that's going on here? Again, we see the dark shadow of Israel's spiritual darkness hanging over the story because if the high priest can't even recognize Ernest's prayer, it makes you wonder, when's the last time he saw it? When's the last time he prayed it? Once Hannah convinces him that she's not one of her son's normal friends, she actually receives his blessing, whatever that is good for, and then we see the effect of her prayer. After pouring out her heart to the Lord, Hannah left the circumstances of her life up to the Lord of hosts. What a wise thing to do. She didn't know what was coming, right? Eli's Eli's blessing was not a guarantee. She left her anxieties at the feet of the Lord. She models this New Testament promise of prayer that we get later that make your requests known to God. And once you do, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, Once again, as we come to verse 19, we're coming to a new stage in the story. We could perhaps call this one, God's up to something. God is up to something. Look down with me. Let's read verses 19 and 20. This is, this is I think, pretty, pretty interesting. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. And they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, "I've asked for him from the Lord." Don't you love that precious phrase in verse nineteen? The Lord remembered her; He is not forgotten. The Lord remembered her, just as God remembered Noah in days of great evil, just as God remembered Abraham when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, just as God remembered his covenant with Abraham in the days of Moses, God remembered Hannah, and he heard her cries. So we see Hannah conceives. The next time she's with her husband, she conceives and gives birth to a son, and she names him Samuel. Now there's an interesting thing that's going on in the original language, the original version of what's going on here. The name Samuel in Hebrew sounds a whole lot like the Hebrew word asked for. Right? And that makes sense. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. Names that, are, that have a lot of meaning and significance. But, but the word Samuel is closely connected with the Hebrew word asked for. Reminding us that for this child I have prayed or for this child I have asked the Lord for. Store that away. We'll come back to that in a moment. Because the text moves forward a few years and now we're back at Shiloh. I'll just summarize verse 21 through 23, but we get some really interesting information uh, that's worth considering about the faith of, of Hannah's husband, of, of, of Elkanah, and whose confidence, who has supreme, incredible, rock-solid confidence in God's purposes. But then pick up with me in verse 24, where we read about how Hannah dedicates Samuel at the temple. Let's read 24 through, through 28 here. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, Samuel, along with a three-year-old bull, an epith of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I have prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Now, there's some really interesting things that are going on in in the Hebrew uh, that would have been obvious to a Hebrew reader. And the reason that's important to us is because if they're there, the author put it there for a specific reason. And we we lose this wordplay in our English translations. We can't, we can't really get this. Let me try to explain it quickly. In verse 27, Hannah uses the word, right? Do you remember what she named her son? Samuel, right? Well, the word Samuel is closely related to the Hebrew word for to ask. Well, she uses that same word multiple times in these verses, especially verse 27. Now, it's not translated the same in in our uh, translations, but... She basically is saying, I asked, I asked, I asked, I asked. This is the one that I asked for. I asked for this one. She's saying it over and over again. Now in Hebrew, basically all words have three letters and they build off of those three letters. And so there's this root part and they build from that. Now, the root for to ask, the first part of it is an S basically and the second part is an L, right? You get it? Samuel. You say S and an L. I'm being kind of crude in in this explanation, but but this is how Samuel's this is how Samuel got his name. The S and the L. In other words, Samuel sounds like the Hebrew word to ask. And so what's going on again, here again is that there's this clear explanation that she asked and asked and, asked and asked and asked and asked and asked and asked and God did something. It's a hint to us that God is up to something. Because Samuel is going to be a central figure in this book. But so is another person, Saul. Guess what his name starts and ends with? It's the same root. So you get, this, you get this picture of Samuel, who's the result of Hannah's faithful asking. And where did Saul come from? He's the result of the people's faithless asking. And yet, and things went very different for the two of them, didn't it? But before we move on to this final part in chapter 2, let's pause for a moment and let's think about some application here. Now, there's a lot of interesting people. There's many interesting characters in this first chapter, and we could learn a lot of things from them, right? We could imitate the godly example of Hannah's husband, you know, except for the multiple wives thing, I guess. Or we could model Hannah's faith in the way that she suffered, and the way that she prayed, or even in her infertility. And I think all these lines of application would be okay, but I don't think those are really the main point of this chapter. First Samuel is really First Samuel one is really not primarily about Hannah, or even about Elkanah, or even about Samuel. This chapter is about God, a God who sees and cares about the suffering of His people, a God who hears the cries of the lowly who humble themselves before Him, and even more than that. This chapter is about a God who intervenes in history to accomplish his purposes and to keep his promises. And even though God's people are going to reject him as king and they're going to ask for Saul, God is preparing the way for his true king through Samuel, the one that Hannah asked for. Now one of the ways that we know this, one of the ways that we can tell that this is more than just about one family and one woman's suffering is because of the prayer that she records for us in chapter 2. The hymn that we read here that Mark read for us is a hymn of incredible importance. One of the things we should note, remember we talked about how First and 2 Samuel are really just one book together, right? Well, 1 Samuel begins with a hymn, right, here in chapter 2, and 2 Samuel ends with a hymn. 1 Samuel begins with Hannah's hymn, and then 2 Samuel ends with David's hymn of deliverance. And just as Mark said, what we're going to see in the coming weeks is that this hymn is really the theological blueprint, of the whole book of Samuel. The more I'm studying this, the more I'm, the more excited I'm getting. So I hope, I would encourage you, just as Mark said, to read through it over and over again. It is, it's like a theological and interpretive lens that the writer of Samuel is using to help us interpret all of these events in Israel's history. It's a celebration of Yahweh, the one true God who can take the misery of a barren nobody from nowhere and bring about a complete unexpected reversal. Not only can God reverse Hannah's personal situation, right? He could definitely do that. But we'll see that this is a God who can reverse even barren Israel's situation. And eventually he's going to reverse the entire world's situation. And so this song with Hannah, it begins with the celebration of the birth of a child, but it ends with a vision of a whole new world. Of a new, or should we say renewed world with God's specifically chosen king on the throne. Samuel will end with David on the throne but Hannah's hymn ends with God's king on the throne, king Jesus on the throne. Now we're going to come back to this song week after week and as we make our way through the book of Samuel. So I won't go through it line by line, but what I'd like to do is give you a quick a preview or perhaps a summary of it because it is I think probably the most significant portion of this book. We've already heard it read, so Try to kind of follow along as I... um, Let me break it down into three key parts. There's three stanzas in this song. The first stanza is in verses 1 through 3. We could call this praise for the God who saves. Praise for the God who saves. In in these verses, Hannah is exalting God for delivering her from her personal struggle, right? Right? It's 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 a mini salvation, right? It's a micro salvation. It's God helped her in her specific problem. Now, one of the things that we notice is she uses this imagery of a ram's horn. Mark, when Mark read it, he translated it uh, strength, I think, and that's a great. That's a, great translation. Um, but there's some imagery that's going, that's going on here. She's, I mean, we don't think very much about a ram's horn, even me from North Carolina where we have rams, whatever. Um, but, but you see, for a ram, its horn is the instrument of its power. It's the instrument of its power. It's its, its source of strength and protection. But what does Hannah say here in verse 1? She praises Yahweh. Why? Because He lifted her horn. He is her strength. And we, what we will see, and he, she goes on to say this in this song, and what we'll see throughout the book of Samuel, is that Yahweh despises those who raise their own horn. Yahweh despises those who make a name of, the, of themselves. God is not looking for people who stand tall. Saul was, what, a whole head taller than all of his peers? There's another tall guy in Samuel, isn't there? David fights him, I think. God is not looking for people who stand tall on their own strength. He looks for those who will stand on the rock. God. A second stanza we see, this is in verses 4 through 8. We see Hannah praise God, praise for the God who rules in unusual ways. Hannah sings about how God completely shatters all human expectations of how he should operate. The strong are defeated and the weak succeed. We will see a boy defeat a whole army. The rich go hungry while the starving feast. The woman with many children will end up with none and the barren woman will end up with a house full of of kids. These divine reversals are not accidents. These are clear arenas where God is setting up the stage to show off his incredible power. So don't miss it. And then finally, the third stanza is in uh, the second part of 8 on through verse 10, and this is the best part. This is praise for God and his worldwide king. Christ is in this text. This last stanza shows us that God is up to something much bigger than Hannah. And much bigger than Samuel. And even much bigger than David. And even much bigger than Israel. God is creating a whole new world order. It's a world that is not based on human strength, but on the power of God. You see, this is God's world. He's going to judge it and He's going to rule it because He made it. And as the end of verse 10 shows us, this God, He's going to let kings, He's going to use kings, He's going to raise them up, He's going to bring them down, but eventually He's going to establish His king. Look down at verse 10, the very end of verse 10. It says, He will give strength to His king and He will exalt. You see that again? He will lift up the strength or the horn of His king anointed. You could put it like this. You could say, God's going to establish his king, his anointed, which is the Messiah, who is the Christ, the king of the Jews. This king will be exalted above every names. But at this point in the story, not yet. And really, in our part of the story, we're waiting for more Exaltation. There's a lot of history ahead, and the road to this kingdom leads straight through a hill called Calvary where God's king will win an unexpected victory. He will defeat the enemy of sin. He will conquer death and he will bring life and he will secure his kingdom and it will be forever and ever. So let's join with Hannah and worship this king. Will you pray with me as we close? Father, we thank you that you are able to accomplish whatever you desire. Nothing can stay your hand. And so, Lord, as we face all sorts of small uncertainties in our life, Lord, we recognize that you rule. And as we look towards the uncertainty of death, we recognize that you rule there too because you came out of the grave. So, Father, we praise you for your strength. We praise you for your might. Be exalted in the heavens and in our hearts, we pray. Amen. You may stand and go in peace, church.